Well, what would you do uh, if the stock market crashed and you lost everything you owned uh, from a material sense, all your stock investments, all your cash, uh, what would you do if that happened? You know, that actually did happen uh, in history. Uh, October 29th, 1929, uh, that day is known as Black Tuesday, uh, the day when the stock market crashed and that led into uh, the Great Depression. You know, the Roaring Twenties had been a time of uh, almost unrivaled economic prosperity in the United States. Uh, you know, the Dow Jones uh, multiplied six times itself in the 1920s alone. Explosive, massive explosive growth uh, coming off of World War I. Uh, and to capitalize on the, the boon that was happening, uh, regular guys with regular jobs were figuring out, figuring out ways to borrow money so they could buy into the stock market and catch on to this boon. Uh, and meanwhile, the, stocks, uh, the prices of stocks were, were inflated. And even the banks were taking the money that people deposited in those banks, and they were speculating on stocks that were uh, somewhat risky. And eventually, the bubble had to burst, and it did. On Black Tuesday, the stock market prices plummeted, uh, and what happened was that the people uh, seeing the stock markets crash, uh, they ran to the bank trying to get their cash out of the bank, and the banks didn't have enough cash to pay out everybody all of their money, and so the banks started to shut down. They started to close because they were out of money. And so uh, there was no such thing then back, uh, back then as the FDIC that protected our money. Uh, and so sa people's life savings just disappeared almost overnight. They were gone. And so today we have better uh, protections on, in the stock market and we have better protections uh, in our bank accounts. But only in 2008 we saw something similar to this, didn't we, in the real estate market where we had uh, an artificially inflated market and we had low interest rates and we had people uh, who didn't have money figuring out ways to borrow money and banks more than eager to lend to people who couldn't afford to make the payments. And you know, it seemed like everybody was buying houses even though they couldn't afford to make the payments. And this all created a bubble that had to burst and it did. And so it seems that no material earthly investment is safe. And the Bible often talks about the fleetingness of wealth. Uh, for example, Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 20, should have been, Proverbs 23.5, uh, when you set your eyes upon it, uh, it is gone, for wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. And we can find lots of verses like that in the Bible where uh, we know that, that our investments, our money is fleeting, uh, but spiritual blessings are forever. So we're in Mark chapter 10 now, and, and we're going to hear the story today of the rich young ruler, a man who depended on his wealth uh, for salvation. And all throughout this book of Mark, we've been asking the question, who is a disciple of Jesus Christ? What characteristics does he or she have? And we've been learning some of the lessons just in the past few weeks. Uh, here are some of the lessons that Jesus taught about what a true disciple looks like. Mark 8, 34, 35. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes uh, to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Mark 29. There's Mark 20. There's yes, Proverbs 23.5. I got it out of order. So Mark 9.29. This kind of demon, that is, can only come out by prayer. So uh, teaching that a disciple must be a person of prayer. And Mark 9.35. Whoever wants to be greatest of all must be last of all and servant of all. 
And so today, uh, another lesson. Uh, it's not wealth that gets us into heaven. It's not depending on, on riches that we have. Uh, it's being a disciple of Jesus Christ has his mind set on, on spiritual things, heavenly things, not uh, earthly things. And so what we're going to see today is that Mark deliberately sets up this contrast between uh, the children uh, who are entering the kingdom of God uh, and the rich young ruler who is not entering the kingdom of God. And we're going to see the differences between uh, the children and the rich young ruler. The children enter the kingdom of heaven because uh, they don't rely on themselves, whereas the rich young ruler does not enter the kingdom of heaven because he does rely on himself. And so what we see is, is that uh, a true disciple does not depend on himself or his wealth or his works for salvation. Uh, a, a true disciple depends on the Lord Jesus Christ alone. So let's look at the children first, uh, verses 13 to 16. Uh, and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them and laying his hands on them. So they were bringing him. They probably refers to the children's parents. The children's parents were bringing them to Jesus, which demonstrates their own faith, that they would bring them to him, uh, and he, they wanted him to touch their children, probably for blessing, uh, perhaps for healing. And of course, the disciples get it wrong again, right? Instead of escorting the parents with their children right to Jesus, uh, they try and prevent the children from coming. Well, why would they do that? Well, maybe they thought that the children were a nuisance to Jesus. Maybe they thought that, that Jesus just shouldn't be bothered with such little ones, even though Jesus had only recently talked about the value of these little children. And so uh, they could have been trying to maintain their own you know, circle of disciples, the 12 that they, that they uh, revered, having, having only 12 of them and not wanting anybody else to be part of it. And Jesus was indignant about all of this. He says, bring the children to me. Uh, so what does he mean when he says, whoever, uh, wants to, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not receive it at all? Well, it makes us think about the qualities and characteristics of children, right? What is it about children? Well, one thing is innocence. I remember uh, being online at the checkout at a Kroger one time, uh, and there was this kid sitting in a shopping cart uh, just before me. Uh, he's probably about like three years old, and he probably had just seen one of the Jurassic Park movies because he's got this Jurassic Park t-shirt on, uh, and he, he makes claws with his hands like a velociraptor and starts hissing at me. He's going, <laughs> <laughs> and I was laughing my head off at this little kid who was about to attack me from a shopping cart. It was hysterical. I, mean, I just thought about the innocence of kids, you know? He wasn't worried about me. He didn't know me from Adam, right? I'm a total stranger, and, and he's having a good time with me, and I was having a good time with him, and we just laughed uh, and had fun, right? No barriers between us at all. But what happens when we become adults, right? We become more cautious. We get more suspicious of everybody, and we, we, don't, we don't really trust others uh, like we do uh, when we're children, and we try and put distance between ourselves and others. And Jesus is teaching that you know, these kids, they, they are not trying to create barriers. Uh, they just come innocently with no fear or no inhibitions. So that's one quality about children. They are innocent. And another quality about children is their dependence, right? Um, I just love to see like a, a little boy walking down the street holding his father's hand, you know, when they're two, three, four years old. It's, 
Uh, it's still really awesome to see. They're not, you know, 13 where it gets kind of weird. Uh, but but at, at four and five, it's just the cutest thing. It's the sweetest thing to see that. Because kids don't depend on themselves for anything, right? They're not thinking about where they're going to get their next meal from or where they're going to sleep tonight. Their parents have that all under control. And they need their parents for everything. And so I think Jesus was kind of teaching that we need these two kind of childlike qualities, this innocence and this dependence, total dependence, uh, to enter into the kingdom of God, uh, depending on Jesus as the means of salvation. And so we have nothing that we can bring to gain salvation, right? There is nothing in us that warrants salvation. So all we can do is trust Jesus like a little child, a childlike faith, trust that God will take care of us. And the kingdom belongs to those of us who are content to receive the kingdom like a child in complete dependence on God alone who provides the gift. So that's the children. Now let's contrast the children with uh, this man that we have come to know as the rich young ruler. Uh, this is verses 17 to 22. Uh, as he was setting out on a journey, uh, a, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking up, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. So we know this man as the rich young ruler. Uh, Matthew tells us that he was young. If we read Matthew's gospel, he says he's young. Luke says that he's a ruler. So you combine the three gospels and he's called the rich young ruler. Uh, he was probably the, the ruler or had some prominent position in the local synagogue, and that's why he's called a ruler. So this man uh, runs up to Jesus and he throws himself at his feet. So obviously he respected Jesus as a man, uh, as a teacher, as a rabbi, or he knew of Jesus' miracles uh, and of his reputation. And so uh, his motivation seems to be very pure, very sincere, right? He asks, good teacher, what shall I do to secure eternal life? Now, apparently he thought he was good, as we see from uh, the way he talks about himself. Uh, but he seems to sense that there is something in him that is lacking. He seems to, to believe that he's missing something. And I'll tell you, I give the man credit for that because there are so many people walking around in the world today who never even give this a thought. They think they are good enough because of their works, because of the things they do. They think they're worthy of salvation. And they never once think that I am a sinner and I need to be saved by grace and that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And they never received that salvation by grace. So I do give the man credit for asking the question. And Jesus' answer is shocking. Why do you call me good? Now, that's a very surprising question to ask, right? Since we know that Jesus is good. But uh, we would ask ourselves, you know, why would, why would Jesus answer like that? Uh, he wasn't denying that he was good, uh, but I think he was trying to get this man to think about the implications of what he was saying. Since only God is good, uh, what does that mean? Uh, perhaps Jesus was challenging the man and saying, look, if you're going to call me good and only God is good, well, are you equating me with God? Are you prepared to make that leap? Maybe that's what Jesus was saying when he said that. 
Or maybe there's another explanation. The man clearly thought he was good by the works that he claimed to have done. Uh, and he thought that Jesus was a good and righteous man, which was why he came and fell at his feet. Uh, so maybe he was trying to include himself in Jesus's category. These are two guys who both show their righteousness by what they do. And so he wanted Jesus to confirm, yes, you too are righteous. You don't need to do anything else. Uh, you are already righteous. And so again, this isn't a bad man, right? He's got good motivation. He's sincere and earnest. The problem with him is that he does not understand what it means to be good. He doesn't understand God's standard of what it means to be good. It's not performance. It's not wealth. It's submission to God that earns his favor. So Jesus tested the rich man's notion that he is good, right? The man said, uh, Jesus said, well, Keep the commandments. You know what God says, keep the commandments. And then Jesus listed these six. Uh, the second six, interestingly, uh, which are the ones that talk about how we are supposed to act in relation to each other. So do not murder, do not commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus summed up all of these uh, when he said uh, in Matthew 22, love one another as yourself. Uh, so that's the basis of the second half of the Ten Commandments. Well, the man says, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. My youth up means the day of your bar mitzvah. The day of your bar mitzvah is the day that you become an adult uh, in Jewish law, and now you're responsible to keep the law. And so he says, since the day of my bar mitzvah, I have kept these things uh, without fail. Now, isn't that an amazing claim? Uh, the man obviously does not understand the true condition of his own heart. He's ignorant of his own sins, and he probably hadn't kept the law since breakfast. But he doesn't realize it, right? He doesn't realize the state of his own sin. And even if he had kept these commandments outwardly, his dependence on wealth and the pride that he had in his wealth affected his heart. And as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, even keeping the commandments outwardly, if you do it with a contaminated heart, that's still sin. Just as guilty as if you actually committed the sin outwardly. Now, Jesus, in his omniscience, he could have started calling out this man's sin, right? He could have run through the laundry list from the time of the day of his bar mitzvah up till today if he wanted to. Uh, but Jesus was so much more tender than that. Uh, verse 21, he loved this man. He loved this man. And I think that is one of the most shocking things in this whole passage as we read through. Uh, Jesus knew the man would choose his possessions, right? Jesus is omniscient. He knows what the man is going to decide. He's going to choose his, pos his possessions, but he loved him anyway. And not many days from the day when Jesus had this interaction with this rich young ruler, Jesus would go to the cross to die for this man's sins and every other sin that has ever been committed. And so Jesus was giving this man every chance to repent of his sins, turn to him, and inherit eternal life. Jesus wanted this man to believe, and so he wants to convict the man of his sins, to see where he is lacking. So he says, one thing you still lack, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Well, that must have shocked the man right out of his sandals, right? That must have just blew his mind. Uh, he's thinking, all right, I'm going to come to Jesus. Maybe I'm lacking something. He's going to give me a little checklist to do, and I'm going to be good to go, right? That's what he was thinking. Uh, he, you know, he, he really thought perhaps even that Jesus might say, you know what? You're good already. You're so good, in fact, you don't have anything to do. Don't, don't do anything. You're already, you know, you're locked. Uh, so Jesus actually tells him not to add anything, 
but to subtract something, right? Subtract all this stuff, because this stuff is a barrier between you and God. It's getting in the way of your relationship between you and God. It's holding you out from the kingdom of God. So the one thing he lacked was not something he had to do, uh, but that he loved his stuff more than he loved God. Now, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy, right? There are plenty of wealthy people in the Bible, and there are plenty, plenty of wealthy people now who are very generous with their possessions. Wealth is not the problem. The question is whether we control our possessions or whether our possessions control us. And that was the rich young ruler's problem. Uh, his love of riches uh, trumped his love for God. And there's no other place in the Bible where anybody is told to sell everything they have and give to the poor. Uh, Jesus looked at this man, saw this man's particular problem, that his riches were an idol in his life. And he said, if we're going to get past this, bur this uh, barrier between you and God, we've got to knock this idol out of your life. So these riches, they have to go. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Uh, these, these, this, his wealth had become a monster to him because it came before Jesus. Now, for other people, barriers might be, you know, addiction to work. Some of us are workaholics. We put our work before we put our relationship with Jesus. For some people, it might be a lifestyle that people don't want to change or a relationship that they might have to break off. It could be anything that interferes with our relationship with God. If that is in the way, we need to take that down. We need to, to remove that barrier uh, that interferes with our allegiance to God. And so Jesus called this man, lay that thing aside, lay those riches aside, sell them, give to the poor, then come follow me. So Jesus put this man in a pickle, didn't he? Uh, he wanted to follow Jesus, but he did not want to give up his riches. So what will he do? Well, his response shows that he really didn't keep the commandments at all, did he? Uh, a, a, a truly generous person would have sold at least some part of his treasure and given it to the poor. Selling possessions would fulfill the command to love one another as yourself, as Jesus said. And so uh, the man couldn't do it. And not only that, uh, but the fact that he had made uh, these possessions of his an idol violated the first commandment, right? That says, you shall have no other gods before me. So, so this man doesn't even realize that he's already violated at least seven of the Ten Commandments that I can think of uh, just by uh, having uh, this, this addiction to his riches. And so this man was not nearly as righteous as he thought he was. You all remember the uh, Christmas classic um, by Dickens, right? Uh, 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 the, the Christmas Carol, where, where Scrooge has this dream at night and he's visited by the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. Uh, and they show that him uh, the effects of, of his miserliness uh, on the rest of the world. And uh, Scrooge wakes up in the morning. He's a new man. He gives Bob Cratchit the day off and starts giving away possessions and does all kinds of, of nice things. He's a completely changed man. And this is the effect that Jesus hoped that uh, his, his uh, convicting uh, speech on his, this man's riches would have on the man. Uh, sadly, it doesn't have that effect on him. Uh, but Jesus wanted it to have that change on him. And he wants it to have the same change on us when we read about uh, the, the difficulty of wealth uh, and how it can get in the way uh, of our relationship with Jesus. So this man refused. He turns and he walks away, and the Bible says he walked away saddened, and he walked away grieving. Now, the word for saddened means to be in an intense state of dismay. Intense state of dismay. And the word for grieving means to cause severe emotional distress. 
So this man didn't like turn and walk away and be like, oh, well, I guess, you know, Jesus didn't really like what I had to say. He was grieving, intensely grieving over the fact that he did not get what he came for. He wanted affirmation that he was good and that he was going to be in the kingdom of God, and he did not get that. And so he was crushed by that. And what we see is that the the cost of discipleship is high, uh, and the rich young ruler seemed to be unwilling to pay it. And how sad to trade uh, eternal life uh, for temporary comfort uh, and riches uh, that we can accumulate in this life, but we cannot take with us. So we have this contrast then between the rich young ruler on the one hand and the children on the other hand. And the difference is night and day. Uh, The children in childlike dependence come to Jesus uh, and they uh, are able to enter the kingdom of heaven. But the rich young ruler who depends on his works uh, and his wealth uh, and his interpretation of keeping the commandments, they don't get in. And it's a sad ending to the rich young ruler's story. But maybe there's hope. And the hope is this, that God doesn't just offer grace once, right? And that's such a beautiful thing about God. If God offered grace only once, I would not be a believer because I rejected his offer of grace many times, many times before I finally received it. And so the offer of grace is continual for as long as we live. And I would like to believe that the rich young ruler had time to rethink this decision, maybe after uh, Jesus died and rose from the grave, uh, and he had time to think about all the implications of what that means, uh, that maybe he truly came to know what it means to be a disciple then. I mean, we'll never know on this side of heaven, but the, the, the offer of grace was open to that man until he died. Well, the apostles were amazed about this interaction uh, between Jesus and the rich young ruler. Uh, So verses 23 to 27, Jesus teaches his disciples. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So we see twice the disciples are astonished, right? Verse 24 and verse 26. Why would they be astonished by this? Well, because they thought that the measure of God's blessing was the amount of money, the amount of wealth they had. Uh, The apostles uh, looked back at Abraham, for example. Abraham uh, was a man of faith, and he had tons and tons of money and cattle and everything else. And so that was kind of their idea. The more wealth you had, the more of God's blessing you had. And now Jesus turns this completely on its head uh, and says that it's harder uh, for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier, in fact, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which is absolutely impossible, right? To have, I don't know how much camel weighs, 2,000 pounds or something, to go through the eye of a needle, right? It's impossible for that to happen. And yet it's easier for, uh, for, for, for a camel to do that than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And you can just imagine the apostles with their jaws hanging on the ground now, right? Well, then how is it possible? How can anybody be saved? And Jesus, of course, then uh, gives uh, the gospel message. Uh, So possessions don't get us into heaven. In fact, it's the possessions that can keep us out of heaven because possessions can be a litmus test of our character. Do we love our possessions or do we love God? You know, the rich have no more access to God than the poor do, right? 
Uh, and, and I think that's shown itself over history. What we're seeing now uh, in, in certain third world countries around the world is that the gospel is exploding. And how do we explain that? Well, maybe it's because they don't have anything else. Uh, and they, they, they depend solely on Jesus Christ, while here in the West, where we have so much, uh, our reliance on Jesus is shrinking. We have become self-sufficient, and we've kicked Jesus out of every imaginable institution, uh, and we don't want him anymore. Uh, and so we see the effects of, of what happens uh, in the West when we rely on our intelligence, when we rely on our wealth. Uh, we don't love Jesus anymore. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you will either, you cannot serve God and money, you will either love the one and hate the other. And that turns out to be true. So the apostles are astounded by this. Well, if wealth doesn't prove God's favor, well, how can anyone be saved? And Jesus responds with the gospel, uh, the whole doctrine of salvation. With people, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Salvation is impossible for you and me. There is no way that you and me can get to heaven. We cannot get to heaven, except that God made a way for us to get to heaven. The only way we can get to heaven is by believing in Jesus, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Uh, and that is how we get into heaven. Not by anything we do, not by anything we think, not by how generous we are. Nothing gets us into heaven except our faith in Jesus Christ. So God sent Jesus to live this perfect life we could never live, and then he died on a cross to pay for our sins, and God only asks, believe in my son. Childlike faith that depends only on Jesus and does not rest on our own wealth and good deeds. And again, there is nothing in us that's worthy of salvation, and that's why we can't save ourselves. That's why salvation is a gift that we must receive and not a wage that we can earn. So Peter flabbergasted by all this, and as the self-appointed spokesman of the group, he wants some clarification. And this is verses 28 to 31. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the sake of the gospel that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So Peter is witnessing this whole thing, right? Peter is standing there, he's watching this interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler, and Jesus presents the man with a choice. You can have Jesus, or you can have your wealth. What are you going to choose? The man goes away sad, and he goes away grieving seemingly without the gift of salvation. And this is the only time in all the Gospels that you see Jesus or see anybody come to Jesus with a need and leaves with that need unmet. The only time it happens in all the Gospels is here with the rich young ruler. So God respects our choices. The ruler did not choose Jesus. He chose his wealth. But what about Peter? Peter reminds Jesus, in case Jesus had forgotten, you know, we left everything to follow you. We left it all behind, and here we are. We're not like the rich young ruler. We're with you. What's in it for us? What are we going to get? So, so Peter is thinking about uh, the rewards. And Jesus told him that there would be rewards, but they would also come with persecutions. In verse 29, Jesus shows he knows the cost. It could be houses. It could be brothers. It could be sisters, mother, father, children, or farms. Following Jesus may cost us everything we own, uh, the things we treasure, the people we love, even our own lives. But all these things are earthly and temporary. Uh, Jesus was quick to point out the benefits in verse 30. We get a hundred times what we may lose 
now, even present day, uh, which a hundred times I think is hyperbole for immeasurable, uh, immeasurable things we get now. So consider some of the things we get, like our spiritual family, for one. Uh, these earlier followers of Christ, just think about them. They probably faced all kinds of rejection from family and friends for following Jesus. Think about Paul the Apostle. Uh, imagine you're Paul's parents, and you had spent all your money to, to have this brilliant young son of, your, son of yours educated at the feet of Gamaliel, the, the most famous, uh, most well-known uh, uh, rabbi of the time. And now he's out there teaching, well, it's salvation by faith, and you don't keep the law for salvation. You don't have to get circumcised for salvation. Can you imagine being mom and dad? Uh, I would imagine, and I don't know for sure, but uh, I would imagine that there was conflict, right, uh, if not being disabled owned by his own parents. But, but look what happened in Paul's life. You read his letters to all the churches that he formed. That spiritual family that he has is enormous now. And so uh, it's a it's hundred times easily uh, what he may have lost in his life. And we can all look around and, uh, at our own spiritual family. And we look in this building. This is our spiritual family. Plus all the Christians you know outside of this room. And all those who have gone before you and who, who will come after you. Uh, the spiritual family that you have and the love that we as brothers and sisters of Christ all share. A hundred times uh, what we may lose in this life. And then the material blessings, the houses, the children, the farms. Maybe that refers to the shared uh, resources that Christians have. You know, we, we ought to be very good at sharing our resources with others uh, because there are many Christians who are in need and we ought to be there to help them. Now, when you think about it, Jesus was a traveling missionary, right? And he depended on the resources of others to help him, give him shelter, give him food on the way. Paul traveled all over the world. Uh, he needed some resources from the people that followed, uh, followed him and those, those who he taught. And so when we share our resources, the gospel spreads, which is why we support so many missionaries in this church. We share our resources with them, they share spiritual resources with others, and the gospel spreads. And we do this because we know that nothing on earth compares to Jesus. What can you possibly own that's of greater value than Jesus? Whatever it is, you cannot take it with you. You're going to pass it down to somebody else. So why treasure it like we do? Nothing gives us the hope uh, that Jesus gives. Nothing gives us the love that Jesus gives. Not Certainly not some inanimate object that may have earthly value. Uh, when you think about it, I, I don't know how people make it through a day trusting in their wealth, which can be so fleeting, rather than trusting in Jesus, who, who provides everything we need and provides eternal life to us. Uh, I don't know how people make it through a day without Jesus Christ, especially in this world. But it's not all milk and honey, is it? Uh, Jesus says there will be persecutions. There will be persecutions. So there is no bait and switch here, right, about this, this uh, shiny, happy Christian life and everything is perfect. Christian life is not like that, right? There will be persecutions. Uh, and so the cost can be high. And those who follow Jesus uh, can expect persecution. But the return is so great, not only in this age, but also in the age to come when we inherit eternal life. Now, if you've ever invested even a dollar in anything, you would be thrilled if you got back a hundred times that investment, right? And that's what we get when we follow Jesus a hundred times now and in the age to come. So we see that there are only two choices. You can choose Jesus for salvation despite the cost and receive present and eternal rewards, or you can choose anything else and receive eternal punishment. 
So the wise person recognizes Jesus, his value, his worth, and the value of eternal life compared to whatever temporal uh, wealth and comforts we have now. Uh, the wise person will invest all he has to receive it back a hundred times, both now and with Jesus in heaven. So the story of the children and the rich young ruler. Uh, let's finish with a few applications. The first is this, uh, to come to God with childlike faith. You know, only by recognizing our own inadequacy, our own lack, that we have nothing that we can come uh, to God with and say, here it is, here's the thing I present to you that makes me worthy in your eyes. We don't have anything like that unless it's Jesus Christ. Uh, if we don't come in complete dependence on God, he's going to turn us away. So we have to come with childlike faith, depending only on God's grace, and that is how we receive salvation. Come to God with childlike faith. <laughs> Remove any other gods from Jesus' throne. No one who has any other gods before Jesus is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So if money, if health, if your job, if your children, uh, if your spouse, uh, if anything else is your God, that means that Jesus is not your God, and that is going to be a problem. So we must worship him and him alone, because God refuses to share his glory with another. So if there's anything interfering in our relationship with God, we need to cut that thing out of our lives. We need to remove it from the throne. The rich young ruler couldn't do it, and the consequences are the difference between eternal life and eternal death. So remove any other gods from Jesus' throne. And then finally, give generously and depend on God. Uh, to invest in God's kingdom and, and to depend on him to provide is what he wants. You know, there's always risk in material wealth, right? The stock market of 1920, crash of 1929 showed that uh, investment in stocks and even cash can be risky. The real estate market crash in 2008 showed that investment even in real estate uh, comes with risk. But there's no risk in investing our resources in Jesus Christ and in God's kingdom. And this te passage teaches us that the more we have, uh, the more we get. The more we give, the more we get, even in this life uh, and certainly in the life to come. Now, most of you know uh, the famous quote by Jim Elliott, right, the missionary uh, who died in the jungles of Ecuador uh, as uh, uh, trying to save the, the uh, Aqua Indians there. And so uh, he said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that is a message that the rich young ruler certainly could have stood to have learned, right? And we need to learn it too, because disciples of Jesus Christ recognize that everything uh, is of no value compared to the surpassing riches of knowing Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these lessons. Uh, every week we're learning a little bit more and a little bit more about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so and we pray, Lord, that these messages are hitting home and that they are shaping us and changing us and molding us into what it looks like for us to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that uh, for none of us that, that money is an obstacle between us and our relationship with you. And if it is for anybody here, Lord, I pray that we will uh, cut that out of our lives and put you on the throne that you deserve to be on. Lord, help us to do these things. Uh, each one of these things is difficult, but Lord, we know that we can do it with you because nothing is impossible for you, God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.